Our gospel reading is from John chapter 2. Jesus attacks the commercialization of religion by driving merchants out of the temple. When challenged, he responds mysteriously with the first prediction of his own death and resurrection. In the midst of a seemingly stable religious center, Jesus suggests that the center itself has changed. And now the reading. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The word of our Lord. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. We are uh, grateful to be in church this morning. We had lost power here at church until about 4 o'clock yesterday. So we were, Mo and Bob Topper and I were coming over and checking, do we have power, do we have heat, can we have church? And it came back on, and here we are, nice and warm. Um, grateful to be here. Hopefully you've gotten some power back too. Uh, if not, use this as a warming and charging station for the next three hours. Feel free to stay and have some coffee and charge your phones and get some Wi-Fi. Um, it's a house of prayer and charging for all people. Uh, well, let's pray. Good and gracious God, we are grateful to be in this place. And we are reminded once again of the power of your creation um, and how dependent we are on so many things and how dependent we are on so many people. And we pray today for uh, those crews who are repairing power lines, who are removing trees from roads, who are plowing and shoveling and making sure that people have power, that people are safe and well and cared for. We pray that you be with those who are the most vulnerable, um, uh, those who don't have enough to eat, those who are cold, those who make their homes on the streets. Uh, we pray for a day when everybody would be fed, when everybody has shelter. Um, but in the meantime, this day, we pray that you would keep them safe, keep them warm, keep them fed. Um, and be with us now as you open your word to us in this day, on this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So about a year ago, I was assigned a bit of spiritual homework. It was at the very end of one of our Zoe Project meetings, and each of our five fellows received a different assignment. One person had to host a dinner party for both friends and strangers. One person had to plan a road trip without using the internet. It's really, really hard to do. Uh, and my task was about minimalism. I had to get rid of one thing on the first day, two things on the second day, three things on the third day, and so on for seven whole days. And I looked at my assignment, and I thought that I had gotten off easy compared to the other fellows. I thought to myself, I don't have that much stuff. Yeah, right. Have you ever told yourself that lie before? I don't have that much stuff. 
And then you move or you downsize or you donate to the flea market or you do a yard sale and you realize that you have about four times as much stuff as you think. And I had lots of stuff, stuff that I had just accumulated over the years and never gotten rid of, random things in my drawers, an extra closet, and the basement, and four different sizes of clothes, stuff that was out of style and never, ever coming back, <laughs> uh, old books that I'd never need or want to read again, little trinkets, the contents of my empty pockets every day that had accumulated over years in the top drawer of my dresser. I did the first day. And then I did the second day, and then I did the third day, and then I finished the week, and I actually kept going and going and going, with trip after trip up to impact to donate the fruits of my sorting. And what I discovered in the process what was that this was truly a spiritual exercise. Um, as I went through all my stuff, it was like looking back over my life, like going through my own personal history, that school I attended, that game I went to, the trip we went on those memories. It was spiritually and emotionally clarifying and liberating. Uh, Gail Blank, who wrote a book called Throw Out 50 Things, Clear the Clutter and Find Your Life, describes all the stuff we accumulate and keep around as life plaque. Life plaque that builds up around you so much that sometimes you can barely move. Life plaque, like the kind on your teeth or in your arteries. And you know, there's actually a Lenten practice around this clearing out. It's called 40 bags in 40 days. And it's a challenge to fill and get rid of one bag of stuff a day for Lent. Uh, you can find it online, but it's pretty much just the way it sounds. And it's a physical and spiritual exercise. And so as if you're counting, as of today, there are 24 days left in Lent. So maybe you could do 24 bags in 24 days. Or maybe just one thing tomorrow and two things the next day and three things the next and so on. And all this has made me think about, uh, think of when we talk about giving up something for Lent. And it's made me think about it in a different way. Instead of giving up for Lent, how about we think of it as letting go for Lent? Letting go for Lent. Letting go of that stuff letting go of the past, letting go of old guilt and old grudges, letting go of worry, letting go of someone else's impossible expectations of us or our own perfectionism, letting go of our disappointments. Now, it's easier said than done, but here's the thing. A lot of times, the spiritual is preceded by the physical. If you want to let something go, uh, you can let your body lead the way by just going through those things in the closet or on that shelf or in your car or in that drawer or on your phone. And take the time just to remember or to be grateful, time to laugh or cry or scream out loud and set it down, put it in a bag, drive it to the donation site and let it go and let it become a treasure for somebody else. And I'm proof that it works, shockingly. <laughs> um, this actually became part of and perhaps even jump-started my own quest for greater health and well-being this past year, my own personal more maintenance campaign. And it worked and it mattered in ways that I did not expect. <clears throat> 
And I've talked before about my fascination with secondhand shopping, uh, this sweater and these shoes, by the way. Uh, and part of that experience is that uh, buying something secondhand is a kind of form of redemption. Because the thing that this person let go of may have been old, they may have considered it trash, maybe it didn't fit anymore, but maybe it was from a time in their life that they cherished, and that blessing gets passed on. Or maybe it represents a difficult time, but that remnant is redeemed when another person picks it up off the rack, takes it home, and finds new life in it where we could not. Lent, not giving up, but letting go. Now, our readings for today are not about spring cleaning per se, but in our gospel reading from John, Jesus is cleansing the temple. So what was Jesus up to that day in the temple, wielding a whip and turning over all those tables and causing such a ruckus? Well, first, maybe we should back up and ask, what was the temple? Would that be helpful? Well, the temple was the center of religious life for Jews in Jesus' time, and it had been for centuries. It was where the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments were kept, and it was considered the very dwelling place of God on earth. And Jews would come from all over Palestine and indeed the world to visit it, to bring their offerings and to make sacrifice. It was the religious and spiritual center of Jewish life, but it was also a major cultural and economic center. This was the second temple to stand on that site, the same site as the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today, which was part of that second temple. And it was built more than 500 years before Jesus was born. And more recently, King Herod, he of the Christmas story, had ordered renovations and enlargements which were still in progress for roughly 50 years before Jesus showed up in our reading. And so the temple was a site for religious sacrifice, animal sacrifice, which was common among ancient religions. People would purchase an animal, and the priests would sacrifice them as an offering to God. But it was forbidden to use Roman coins in the inner courts of the temple because it had a graven image on them, the image of Caesar. And so they were traded for blank coins that could be used within the temple precincts. In other Gospels, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he accuses the money changers and the sellers in the temple of being a den of robbers, profiteering off this normal, if seemingly arcane, religious system. But in John's Gospel, John tells the story a little differently than the other writers. Jesus faults them for making my father's house a marketplace, but doesn't go so far as calling them thieves. Commentators describe the cleansing of the temple, this flipping of the tables and driving people and animals alike out of the temple, as almost a form of performance art, performance art, used to get people's attention for the most important statement in this passage, which is easily obscured by all the action. When Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said to him, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you'll raise it up in three days? Actually, it's a more preposterous statement than they imagined because the temple had been there for 500 years. But Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about himself. 
and how in a manner of speaking he is the new temple where God lives on earth, no longer confined to a particular place in Jerusalem, no longer confined to a building, no longer accessible only to some and not to others, no longer requiring people to make a sacrifice for sin because he would become the one true sacrifice on the cross for all. He's saying that God doesn't just live or show up in one place or at one time of the year or week, not just during events on our church calendar, but in every place, because God is everywhere with us moment by moment. We always have a free and direct connection with God. Jesus was saying that there was no longer a need to travel miles and miles to Jerusalem to pay your money and make sacrifice to be justified in God's eyes because Jesus in his death and resurrection would do that for us. He showed us that God's love and grace and forgiveness are a free gift and that there's no place that is beyond God's presence and no people that fall outside of God's love. In fact, 40 years after Jesus stood in the temple that day, it was destroyed by the Romans. And Judaism and Christianity had no choice but to find God elsewhere and to find God everywhere, not in temple worship, but in homes and churches and synagogues and beyond. And this was not the only time that Jesus confronted the religious authorities and religious systems, of course. He constantly debated with the Pharisees and the scribes. He would later take the religious establishment head on in his passion. Jesus called into question and rejected the ways in which religion served itself, the ways that it was paralyzed by its own privilege, the ways that it took for granted the way things were and imagined that they had always been that way, the ways that it had forgotten or had lost its path, the ways that it imagined that people were meant to serve the religion rather than religion serving the people when it became a weapon rather than a salve. Jesus challenged and completely revolutionized the ways that people understood God and faith, and religion, and forgiveness, and healing, and salvation. In her her book, um, The Great Emergence, the beloved religious writer Phyllis Tickle wrote that the church today is in the midst of of a once-every-500-year rummage sale. That we are in the midst of a once-every-500-year rummage sale. Her theory is that every 500 years in the church, there is this massive tectonic shift. 500 years ago, as we recently celebrated, was the Reformation with Martin Luther when he confronted the church about indulgences and other excesses that obscured the gospel. 500 years before that was the great schism or split between the Western and Eastern churches. 500 years before that, monasticism transformed and saved the church. And 500 years before that, a baby was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Now, the historical analysis here is highly, highly debatable, but the rummage sale analogy is actually super helpful because we are indeed in the midst of a great church rummage sale, a great spring cleaning in which the church discerns which elements of its accumulated traditions to keep and which can be lovingly let go, not given up, but let go. In a new book called The New Copernicans, Millennials and the Survival of the Church, David Seal likens this massive shift that's happening in our religious landscape, particularly among millennials, as moving from the Ptolemaic understanding of the world, where the earth was considered the center of the universe, 
to the Copernican understanding that the sun is the center of our solar system. He calls millennials the new Copernicans and says, we now live between the lightning and the thunder, between the flash of insight and the sound of all traditional institutions being completely reshaped, not the least of which will be the church. The church rummage sale is real and necessary and part of the nature of religion itself. And we, like those operating the religious system in the temple, may be surprised or shocked or even offended at it and resist the ways that religion is changing. And realizing, as it was for those who witnessed Jesus in the temple that day, that this change is in the hand of younger generations. There are many in the world of American Christianity that see this as a threat. When systems are questioned, when tables are overturned, when voices are raised, But what emerges in the process and the cleansing of our temples is the bringing to birth of something new and a reminder to all of us that the power and love and grace of God is bigger than our systems and our boxes and our imaginations. That in the kingdom of God, death is always followed by resurrection and that new life in Christ is not just for some, but for all. Tear this temple down and I will raise it again in three days, Jesus said. And he did. The great rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel once wrote that faith is not the clinging to a shrine, but an endless pilgrimage of the heart. May God give us the grace, the generosity, the trust, and the hope to not give up, but to let go of those things that do not serve us well, that weigh us down, that fill our spiritual closets that once helped, but now hinder our faith, and to embrace the new and abundant life in Christ. Amen.